1: Hello, welcome to the podcast. It is Owen Jones here. Today, Naomi Klein. Big impact on me, I have to say, as a teenager, as a a lost lefty in the wilderness, uh, she was something of a life raft. Um, One of the people who inspired me to write. She's got a lot to answer for. Uh, And we speak about a huge amount, uh, about what's going on in the United States, about the climate emergency, about what the pandemic means. ...about big tech, what's going on in India at the moment. Uh, we talk about a real range of, of stuff from one of the, the leading progressive writers and authors on the face of the earth. So very lucky to have her. Usual bit of hi- housekeeping. Uh, please do uh, support us if you can as we to continue the podcast and the channel... ...and all the stuff that we're doing, the documentaries, the discussions, the debates... Uh, on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84. That way you get to decide who we talk to, what we talk about, what questions we ask. Uh, Also, you can use the supporter function in the description. Please do give us five star. Just, you know, encourages wider listenership. And other than that, there's not much more for me to say. So let's hand it over to Naomi Klein. Naomi Klein doesn't need an introduction. And I'm not going to do the... She doesn't need an introduction but now i'm gonna introduce her i'm just not <laughs> gonna introduce her everyone knows who she is you've read her books you've read her articles you've seen her on countless things she's
2: maybe I, just I'm, clarify that i didn't write the beauty myth that i don't believe chemtrails are a government conspiracy i think what? COVID is real i think bill gates is a terrible guy but not because he's implanting things into us through vaccines but because he's destroying education and agriculture um, anyway, that Naomi, that's all. That's all the introduction I need. That that's a I'm great intro. Not that
1: Naomi. She's not the Naomi who's going around blowing up 5G <laughs> masks or whatever Whatever the other Naomi is up to. <sighs> Where to begin? Do you know what? Let's begin with Biden. So, minimum wage. Uh-uh. Bonds on Syria, though. They're, so both the minimum wage and bonds in Syria have been dropped in two different ways. Now, I suppose there's two ways of looking at it. And I guess I'm just interested in terms of a Are theory. There- well, no, but well, that's what I was going to put to you. <laughs> yeah,
2: okay.
1: Biden, I suppose, it's one way, like, in terms of the US left, in terms of one way of looking at it is, well, actually, things have been won materially. And that shows that that struggle pays off versus mm. not sowing illusions in Biden's administration. Mm. So I'm just interested, where, what's your take so far from a progressive perspective about where the Biden administration is and how where, where where the left should kind of stand right now?
2: I mean, I think the sooner that there is clarity that Biden is Biden and Kamala Harris is Kamala Harris and, and, and that they are exactly who we always knew they were um, when we opposed them uh, in the primaries, it, the sooner the better. And so now I think people clearly know um, and and that, that this is a continuation of U.S. imperialism and corporatism as usual. Um, and yet, there are things that we can get done under that kind of administration that we couldn't under a Trump administration or, or a Bush administration, um, just because of just the straight up, like, you, you know when you're dealing with Republicans and progressives push you just literally are just not their voters so they just don't have any reason to care whatsoever um, and, and and there have been things that, that you know have been pushed for and 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 one so far like canceling the Keystone XL pipeline um, like uh, um, you know some decent a- action or on, on climate uh, some marginal progress on people's relief uh, uh, for COVID, Um, not nearly enough, right, on any front. Um, But I just think it's good to have clarity that this is, yeah, this is the the war party. The Democratic Party always has been. Um, This is the party of corporate power. We're going to have to push them like hell. Um, but you know, you have to remember that during during the Trump years, we didn't even really bother pushing Trump because there was nothing to push. There was no way we were going to do anything but sort of build our own power in parallel and maybe win some things at the state level, you know, and the municipal level, but we certainly weren't going to win them at, at the federal level. Um, so, you know that's that's where we're at. We knew that this is why this is, this is who he is. Um, this is who he's always been. Um, this is why we opposed him. This is why we supported Bernie. Like, it's not news. Um, but there were, I think, a fair number of people who were a little confused by the sort of progressive talk that marked the early days of the administration. And it was like, well, maybe he's really seen the light and he wants to be FDR. No, he, he doesn't want to be FDR. You know, um, he wants to be Joe Biden. Um, but that said, you know, what do you do with that information? Just go like, that? you know, I'm just going to gonna scream at people on Twitter and tell them they're idiots for thinking they can get anything done? No, you try to get things done anyway. Isn't that inspiring? It, I actually, I mean, I think a realistic assessment
1: is the foundation of them being inspired. It's a good jumping off point into inspiration. And I think not, not that screaming at people on Twitter for being idiots or whatever isn't therapeutic in its own way yeah i mean in terms of now so you've got the so-called squad in Mm -hmm. congress Mm -hmm. and they've got they have got new blood now you've got cory bush you've
2: got jamal Bowman, jamal Jamal Bowman, yeah um maybe nina turner on the way because she's running uh exactly um, yeah so i mean we again and
1: obviously we have aoc who came down from socialist heaven one day but i mean what what do you think? Because you've got them and then obviously they surfed the wave of a the movement. They were put there by a movement that exists. They, they, they're they not, you know, detached from that. What do you think the pressure points are? What do you think the strategy now is for for the squad and the movement that it represents?
2: Um, well, you know, I think you can see what their strategy is, which is, you know, they are, there's no honeymoon for Biden. Um, they're, 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 they're being a extremely critical um, of the failure to come through, for starters, on the two thousand dollar checks, which was promised on the fifteen dollar minimum wage. Um, You know, I think some of them are more focused on foreign policy than others. And we you know, we we need more. Um, You know, they've been very critical on uh, a continuation of brutal immigration policies, which, once again, of course, we should expect because Biden was Obama's vice president. Obama was the deporter in chief, Um, so so the squad um, you know needs to stay as independent as possible, build their own power, you know, as a kind of a pincer with social movements pushing from the outside and and then pushing from the inside. But I think that the big difference is that now they can get some, they can potentially get some bills passed through Congress, Um, and I know that there's some exciting legislation coming. Uh, coming up in the next few days and weeks uh, uh, from those new members, from Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman, so definitely look for that. Um, and, you know, I guess the main thing to know about the squad is that you know, they are an ad hoc group, and, and so I think they would, you know, we, I think we'd all benefit from more coordination between them, probably. Um, you know, it's not like there is a, there is a uh, congressional progressive caucus um, which is becoming more progressive, which is co-chaired by Pramila Jayapal, who's also excellent. Um, uh, but I think we all just need to get more coordinated movements on the outside. And and it's, it's the challenge of, of organizing, right? Um, uh, movements need to organize across silos. Um, and and maybe there, there's, there could be more coordination within the squad and the progressive caucus um, because there's power there. Uh, and... Yeah, I, I mean, I honestly don't know. <laughs> like, um, I think people are doing really well in terms of not repeating the mistakes of the Obama years, of just kind of demobilizing and kind of acting as fans of the new administration instead of, um, you know, uh, uh, of opponents. Yeah, it, it, you know, I always liked what Annie Leonard at Greenpeace said, that she wasn't choosing... Um, you know, a friend, she was choosing an opponent uh, in, in who she decided to support for president and, and Obama's a, a, and Biden's a better opponent than Trump from a progressive perspective. Um, so, yeah, so I think that 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 the really dangerous thing would have been a repeat of that kind of Obama fan relationship with a politician. I, I mean, what I like about Biden is precisely that he is such an uninteresting and uncharismatic figure. Um, I think that's very good. I think our worst case scenario is when we have a brutal, you know, neoliberal imperialist and and everybody's got a massive crush on him. I think that's really a big problem and, and that we had during the Obama years. And we lost years to this kind of give the guy a chance, let's see what the long game is. You know, we're two months in and people are like, oh, okay, I get it, I see who you are. We need to fight with you now, you know? That's good, you know? Obviously it would have been better if Bernie were president We tried, Owen. (laughs) You bloody well did try, Owen. You
1: tried very, very hard. I mean, you were a campaigning machine during the primaries. I have to say, the general election here in Britain was obviously apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will still wake up with sweat on my face thinking about that moment of the exit poll. And then we clung on to Bernie Sanders as a little life draft.
2: We've been through a lot, haven't we, (laughs) Owen?
1: It's been a long year and a half. It's been a long few years. I mean, it, what you're talking about? David Sirota talks about this. At this least whole... we're
2: losing bigger struggles. I yeah, <laughs> no, that was the thing because I was like,
1: "It's terrible. We lost here. That if we win Bernie, that's like the global hegemon." So we stuff. need
2: to like we need to like edit that sort of you know um, fail, try again, f- fail again, fail better. So I think it's sort of like fail, fail, fail again, <laughs> fail bigger. <laughs> Fail bigger. Really go,
1: really set your sights, yes. your hopes, your aspirations. How big can we fail? We can do this. Yeah, I mean, David, let me just, sorry. Oh, my cat wants to say hello. This is Rickman. Are you going to say hello? Are you going to
2: say hello to Naomi? <laughs> oh, oh, not not really.
1: Yeah, David Taroa, he's the former Bernie speechwriter, and he said, he talks about this um, during the Women's March after the 2016 elections, and it had something like this placard saying, if Clinton had won, we'd just be at lunch now. And there was that theory of politics. Brunch. Brunch, not lunch, brunch. Uh Brunch is Brunch ski. I mean, look, it's 5pm, you're at 9am, and you're way more on the ball than I am. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and it was that idea, of that theory of politics is, we'll make politics boring again, so Uh you won't have to think about it. That's what their promise was, wasn't it? So do you see that? Because in 2008, there was this sense of shiny, charismatic Obama, and he'll solve everything. He'll pull the levers for you. You don't have to care. Uh, And then obviously people will let down and disappointed. But do you think that, because now you've got the Sunrise Movement, you've got BLM, you've got these these movements on the streets, and obviously the pandemic interferes with all of that. BLM did start, of course, under the Obama presidency. So you did get... Well, all,
2: all of these movements did. I mean, people learned that lesson around mobilization in the second... Term of Obama, where, where there was oops, sorry, I'm beeping. Right. Um, yeah, uh, there was there was um, you know we lost we lost the first term basically uh, of Obama. By 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 his second term, people were like, okay, um, we have to get in the street, the streets, and and you saw the emergence of of several you know really powerful confrontational movements, including Occupy Wall Street, um, and that sort of turns into the to, to the Bernie campaign. Um, or parts of it, so, so yeah. I mean, we did it, it, the, the But I think that that's important because I think that 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 for the more cynical among us, there's a tendency to say, "Oh, it's just Obama Redux. We're back where we were, right?" Um, because Biden is is Obama, you know, essentially. We're getting Obama like policies with the military and and immigration, um, and 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 to to you know to to a lesser extent. The economy, but, but, to, but to a large extent. Um, but we are not the same as we were in 2008. That's what's important to understand. The social movements aren't the same. We didn't lose the, 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 the Trump years um, in the sense that people continue to organize, people continue to develop their analysis, their relationships. Um, and the legacy of the Sanders campaign is real in terms of the pressure on the Biden administration that is already exerted.
1: Where do you think the energy behind Trumpism is going to go? I mean, obviously, I mean, there's different schools of thoughts on this. And, you know, Mark said men make their own history, but not in circumstances of their own choosing. And the role of the individual in history is open to debate and at different oh, moments oh, has oh. more role. But, you know, some would say he has got this specific personality that, that actually made the phenomenon what it was. Others would say, well, actually that energy could end up finding a far more effective, brutal operator who could end up being more devastatingly effective. So, I mean, what do you think in terms of the threat of some form of fascism, which, you know, in 2024, maybe finding a better candidate, where do you think the energy is going to go in the next few years that drove the Trump phenomenon?
2: Well, I, you know, I do, it, it will go somewhere, Um and it's, yeah, it's definitely not going away because it never went away. And, and it just, it, it, it was magnified by Trump, but Trump didn't invent it. Um, and, you know, all I know is that we make it stronger. We give it more life. The more that neoliberals are able to be neoliberals in power under Biden. Um, so the more that the Democrats are the party of austerity are the party of, Corporations are the party of war. The more we super empower the, you know, the reanimation of whatever is going to come out of the fascist right, um, whether it's another Trump run, whether it's a Trump son run, whether it's you know a, not a Trump but, um, but 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 an even worse, more effective fascist. I mean, what you what's what's really interesting, you know, if you watch Fox and in particular Tucker Carlson. Um, you really see how kind of relentlessly they are um, hitting the you know big tech is after you like big business and and, and a very kind of anti corporate populist fascist message um, and 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 there is a direct relationship between neoliberal centrist parties um uh doing the work of big business and the and the effective rise of that form of right-wing populism or so-called populism so um i don't know we can't control them owen all we can do is try to 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 steal their fuel right Um, and their fuel is the success of the of, of 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 the um you know the corporate imperialist uh neoliberal project right um, obviously, their fuel is also white supremacy and, and and misogyny and homophobia and transphobia and all of that. Um, that's always been there, and it will be there. The question is whether we give it this extra power of look. Look at these Democrats. They're you know they 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 have nothing to offer you. They're liars. They're they're you know they're corrupt. Um, and unfortunately, the Democratic Party is really good at giving them that fuel. So it's a scary moment. Because, yeah, because the signs that. are not good in terms of, you know, just what we've seen this week, right? With with it with minimum wage, with the failure to to come up with those two thousand dollar checks, with the failure, you know, what with, with bombs you know dropping on Syria. I mean, it's all just kind of writing Tucker Carlson's script for them, right?
1: And he is, I have to say, horrifyingly effective yeah. at what he does. You can see him as an extremely effective Republican candidate, which lots of people think he might end up being.
2: No, anyway. I think that's right. And that would be absolutely not a good thing.
1: Because he, he combines often populist messaging on the economy with obviously horrendous racism. So he can, you can see both sides he can exploit, says the Democrats.
2: No, I mean, he's like Bannon, but he's, you know, obviously he's telegenic. He's the most popular, you know, TV guy in America right now, I believe, more than Hannity.
1: Yeah, and um, see, Bannon's definitely. not telegenic. He uses uh, he uses links <laughs> to Africa after, Um deodorant weird not the weirdest thing about him James well, grant, doesn't really
2: read on tv that's not the biggest problem i think the biggest problem <laughs> is like there seems to be more and more shirts layering <laughs>
1: there's lots of shirts going on um, people are very excited on patreon that i was chatting to you and they've got really great questions so james grant talking about the shock doctrine and how it applies to the covid era what are the lessons of disaster capitalism for our present moment of crisis what can the left do or argue to avoid the recovery being more economic shock therapy leading to more inequality and exploitation.
2: Okay, I'm just going to just do a very quick version of this because I think you've, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but look, we need we need to resist their disaster opportunism, their disaster capitalism, their attempts to use the cover of the pandemic to push, uh, um, you know, every bad policy under the sun, and they'll continue to do that. But the lessons of the 2008 financial crisis is that, and here I'm going to quote one of my book titles. No is not enough. It is not enough just to say stop doing that. We know what you're doing. We know what you're up to. Um, you know we. The, you know the, you're not actually solving the crisis. You're just taking advantage of it. it. It's important to do that. But what I deeply believe is that we will lose unless we are simultaneously advancing a very proactive vision for how to solve the multiple overlapping crises we face. And that's why, you know, I think we should be. Um, you know, dead focused on on a Green New Deal vision as a way to solve economic crises, climate crises, racial justice uh, crises, um, all of the, the the intersecting crises of our age. And we can't do that.
1: And and another, I mean, another question relates to that for Max Counter with COVID, we've seen governments produce near unlimited budget to tackle the pandemic. With the evidence of this, how does it change the strategy for persuading the government to do the same with the climate emergency, which is obviously a of a bigger deal than than covid is however horrendous COVID has been
2: well um i don't think it's an either or i think it's uh um we our economies need uh need stimulus they need people need jobs um we need a plan we need a mission um and and we can design that mission around these intersecting crises i mean the, the, the 1930s when the, the original New Deal was introduced was a time of of obviously economic crisis but it was also ecological crisis it was the time of the Dust Bowl there were there were also public health crises TV was spreading um, uh, uh, you know all over the place it was um, you know it and so the the vision for the Green New Deal needs to be one that's that that is about investing in the infrastructure of care of health of public health which is low carbon work if we do it right um, and simultaneously divesting from the extractive economy and just taking what we need um, and protecting cycles of regeneration creating huge numbers of green jobs the bottom line is i think we are in a better much better situation than we were say five years ago or even more recently, when so much of the discussion of climate action and climate policy was focused on things like a carbon tax or cap and trade, um, and not a actual industrial strategy um, for the next economy. Uh, And the reason why it matters that we've finally moved to a more expansive vision of what climate action could look like, and that's what I think the, the Green New Deal represents, is that this is obviously a, um, a, a, a plan for any economy in crisis, right? Um, whereas in 2008, when when climate action was more associated with carbon pricing, it was um, it was it was very easy for governments to just say, "Hey, we're in an economic crisis. We can't care about climate anymore," right? And many governments in Europe did that, including left governments who just said, "Like, sorry, we we've got to put food on people on, on the table." We can't worry about climate anymore. At the Green New Deal approach, uh, whatever you want to call it, is a plan to put is a plan to marry the need for well-paying jobs um, and, and and income you know income supports of all kinds and and climate action at you know at, at its most basic. So, I actually think we're in a better situation than we are when the economy is doing great supposedly, because when you have an economy in a growth cycle, it's harder to argue for this kind of massive change. You know, I've tried and people are like, yeah, but that was the Great Depression and the Second World War. We're not going to do something like that when things are supposedly fine. Right. And that's the sort of argument that I was hearing, you know, 13 months ago.
1: Because that's, that's always the danger, isn't it? That when you get growing support actually for some form of systemic change to deal with an emergency like the climate emergency. Mm-hmm. And then you get the so-called, you know, these voices of so-called moderation who divert that, that energy into the most limited, you know, just kind of trim around the edges, fiddle around the edges of the system and, and then present that as sufficient when actually in a period of upheaval like this, there is at least an opportunity to, to to demand far more reaching systemic change, it seems more realistic.
2: It is. I mean, we are in a time of big problems, and 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 tinkering is not going to do it. And I think you know one 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 thing I can say about Biden that is an improvement over Obama is that he does seem to understand that we are in a time of of of, of at least four intersecting crises, and he sort of lists them right of. of Obviously, the economy, COVID, climate, and racial injustice. And given the depths of the COVID crisis and the economic crisis, he could have just kind of brushed climate aside, and he isn't doing that. And I think that that is a testament to the to the organizing of young activists uh, in Sunrise, um, and and uh, and and the pressure of the Squad, and and the victories of the of the of the um, Bernie camp in pushing for these. Um, these committees, right, They, they, they there was a, an agreement between the two campaigns to have committees on certain issues, including climate, and AOC chaired the climate one, and Varshni Prakash, who's um, executive director of Sunrise, was on that. And 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 I, and I think they had a huge impact, uh, at least on the framing. So that's one area where I, where I think we're actually in surprisingly good shape, because um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been at all surprised. If if Biden had just completely forgotten about climate change in the midst of the other crises he's dealing with.
1: Well, that point you made about younger activists, I do think is very interesting, and in terms of something which isn't not remarked upon enough. I mean it's both an opportunity and a challenge in that.
0: Tired of ads, barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news, ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com newsadfree. That's amazon.com newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. In 1968, the most pro-war generation
1: in the United States were the under 25s. And the most anti-war were older Americans oh. at the time. Uh, I mean, people look back at student protests at the time. Most people didn't go to university back then, and actually, the polling showed most university students support the Vietnam War. In the mid '80s, most uh, the the most pro-Reagan demographic were young Americans, and it's the same in in Britain in 1983 when the Tories won a landslide victory under Thatcher, the youth voted for the Tories. Wow. And that has dramatically changed in both United States, you know, because there's this cliche, isn't there, that of course the young are naive and idealistic, and then they're schooled by the realities of life and they become conservative as maturity takes them to uh, understand the, the, the terrible realities, the hard nosed realities of life. I mean, that is interesting, isn't it? The way actually that younger people are both, it's not everywhere in places like Hungary young people are not progressive mm-hmm. in places like Spain and Britain and the United States it is younger people it's bo- it's millennials and zoomers uh but at the same time you do have a very entrenched conservative uh block amongst often older white property owners i mean that 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 that's a that's the challenge as well as the opportunity but there is mm-hmm. what do you think about this generational gap that's opened up which is without precedent in in mm-hmm. in democratic mm-hmm. history
2: yeah, I mean, I think that it's uh, I think there's, there is a huge generational shift and it isn't just like young people are more progressive, they're more involved in activism. I think it is that this generation, like particularly Gen Z, is absolutely anti-capitalist in their analysis. I mean, they want to change like the underlying system. Um, they really are not interested in the kind of siloing of politics that uh, even millennials were sort of took for granted, right? Of like, okay, you have to choose your issue and just focus on on that issue, and and so that is the biggest shift that I see, and and and, and certainly millennials, I think, are obviously more progressive than than my generation, um, and a lot of this has to do with just having spent your entire adult life in the post 2008 financial crisis but even if you compare it with the 1960s wave of um you know progressive youth the the focus on the economy is different it is is what's different because the radicalism of the 1960s was mainly focused on on the war uh, and and on so- so-called cultural issues and less a sort of Real bread and butter uh, uh, analysis of capitalism, and I think that that is a big shift. And I see it just, you know, among the students I teach at, at Rutgers, which is a you know big public university, um, very diverse student body. Uh, um, I think we have the highest number of percentage of students for, who are the first in their families to go to to go to a post secondary institution. Um, and just even from one semester to the next, I see my students getting more and more radical. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I think it's a big deal. and and it's not, like I said, it's not just about like, are you going to a protest? Do you identify as progressive? It's how deep are you interested in going? And this, they, they're interested in going pretty deep.
1: I have to say, there's there's an online phenomenon of Zoom. I'm an older millennial. Uh, no, Zoom no, no. is mocking. Millennials, I find it so distressing. It's really okay. <laughs> um, you've just written an absolutely brilliant must-read, and everyone must immediately, whether they've watched this interview live or listened to it on the podcast, after you finished, do look it up on The Intercept. India targets climate activists with the help of big tech. Tech giants like Google and Facebook appear to be aiding and abetting a vicious government campaign against Indian climate activists. I want to talk about this. I, I did an event before the pandemic with Aaron Hattie Roy, which was – I mean she was on great form but it was it was distressing and disturbing what has happened to India which is obviously the world's biggest democracy though democracy with several caveats yeah. uh, is 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 very very disturbing and things have deteriorated in the two years since I had that event with I have to say but it, it's interesting talking about this in terms of um just talk about in terms of tech giants because often again this isn't something the left is talking about enough and you got this when Trump was taken off Twitter I think some people raise, actually this could be quite problematic for various reasons but people you know there was all this liberal rejoicing on social media it was difficult to kind of have a conversation about that but I I'm just be interested oh, yeah. just to just to unpack this because obviously they've lot they don't have China which is the biggest potential market on earth it's mm-hmm. the second biggest so just talk through what's going on in India what this activism is about and what big tech are doing
2: mhm sure um yeah, so I think the first thing to understand about big tech and 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 these very sort of different trends um, around what, what what companies are doing in North America and Europe and where what they're doing in places like India is on the surface it seems like a real contradiction because um, in 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 you know since it was clear that Trump had lost the election or was going to lose the election there has been all of this sort of posturing from big tech companies to show how serious they are about human rights and stopping hate speech and stopping conspiracies. And they're putting warnings and they're you know, they're 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 finally getting serious about um, about incitement on their platforms. And we're hearing about, you know, the Supreme Court of Facebook, which is supposedly going to be um, a way that Facebook is going to regulate itself. Um, and then you look at what they're doing in India, and they are happily amplifying uh, incredible, uh, um, just overt kind of genocidal language from uh, um, politicians associated with Modi. Um, you know, doing things like claiming Muslims are deliberately spreading um, COVID, and, and and doing hashtags like Corona, uh, Corona Jihad, and things like that. And in India, this regularly tips into real violence, right? And so, you know, you think about all these documentaries and hand-wringing from, the, from Facebook and 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 Twitter about, oh, they just feel so bad about what happened in Myanmar with the Rohingya, and they'll never let that happen again. And meanwhile, they are collaborating with, with the Modi government in two ways. One, by, by, by not cracking down on obvious hate speech when it comes from the Hindu nationalists and by collaborating with them when they want to invade the privacy of of activists uh, like Disha Ravi, a young uh, climate activist. But there are hundreds of people who have faced this where they created this absolutely make believe controversy over um, a a so-called digital toolkit. Right. So, oh, and I like. I know that you, these things are probably the bane of your existence. I know they are of mine, right? Where like every single activist campaign puts together a click toolkit and you get one of these emails and it's like, take a picture of yourself with, you know, a hashtag, uh, right? Like, I mean, how many of these have you received Owen? like. Today, today, about five. Right. Hashtag save the world. Exactly. And it's like. I mean I, I mean I don't mean to be too dismissive of it but this is not like dangerous activism right I mean this was this is just like clicktivism 101 stand with India's farmers right India's farmers have been in revolt for months and there has not been enough international solidarity so this was an attempt by people in the South Asian diaspora and in India to try to kind of wake people up like this is the biggest movement uh, in, in India in, 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 in potentially in India's uh, you know modern history. Um, they're fighting against neoliberal policies. They're fighting for their lives. People should stand with India's farmers. So that's what this guide was about. It was like, stand with farmers, take a picture, send a video, go to an Indian embassy if you can. Um, And there was a line in it that said, like, challenge the yoga and chai image of India, okay? Um, This was sent to Greta Thunberg, who tweeted it. And then all hell breaks loose. And there is this thing they call they're calling it the Greta toolkit, the toolkit conspiracy, a plan to destroy India. Um, They're claiming it's seditious. They're claiming it's incitement. They're claiming it's a plan to break India. apart. I mean, it's just so over the top, utterly fictional. Right. But with very real world results, because several young uh, climate activists in india get arrested and, uh, and most prominently disha ravi who brought fridays for future to india she was in prison for eight days interrogated for five days um i mean the the the, the coverage in in indian media has been so over the top uh presenting her as they call her the linchpin of the toolkit conspiracy i mean owen i am telling you that the toolkit is like the most like, like the mismatch between the, the 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 content of what they're talking about and the actual real world implications of it are so just so misaligned um, and so there's been um, you know Fridays for Future has 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 been raising the alarm on this um, and and yeah I just wrote this piece I'm I, you know the, the the part of it that I think is we really need to focus on is the complicity of these tech companies because um, you know, there's a lot of regret in places like Google and companies like Google and Facebook that they lost access to China's market over this sort of early misguided uh, um, idea that they shouldn't uh, actively collaborate with state censorship and hunt down activists. Because and well, in, in the early days of the Internet in China, there were several high profile cases of companies like most prominently Yahoo um, helped the Chinese government to like find the location of a dissident right who, who who put something online that the Chinese government didn't like and Yahoo was like okay this is where the IP address it came from this is how to find them this led to an uproar and the these companies pulled out including Google under pressure uh, also from their workers and you know that they have been watching the the Chinese market with much regret as competitors you know Chinese companies have have cornered that market and now, India seems to be going the way of China and has introduced a a digital media bill that that is just outrageous in its in the powers that it gives to the state to just take down whatever they don't like. They call it mischievous content. What the hell is mischievous content Um, or any content that maligns the quote unquote integrity of India? What the hell is that? You know, how do you how do you malign the integrity of a country? Um, I'm sure I've just done it right now, you know. Um, and that's that line about yoga and chai. That's what they seized on. They said they are maligning the integrity of India by saying that they're going to, um, you know, kind of expose India's yoga and chai image for, you know, and, and show the real human rights abuses behind it. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Arundhati. I mean, think about the the, the outspoken critics of India. They are in danger right now under under these laws. So we really need to speak out and I think use the the greatest leverage we have, which which is the desire of these these tech companies to be seen as ethical in Europe and North America so as to avoid real regulation. right? So they have very different interests, um, except it's all the same interest, which is maximum profit. So in North America and Europe, getting those maximum profits means showing that you can be responsible in self-regulating hate speech and conspiracy so that you don't actually get regulated Mm. in india um the way to protect your bottom line is to do the exact opposite and just you know collaborate with 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 a government that is itself spreading hate speech um and there's a there's a um an opportunity there i think to to pit those two projects against each other
1: yeah and we've seen it with places like turkey as well which also have you know, laws which ban people from insulting the president and so on. And there's been a whole palaver with Twitter and YouTube and so on. Mm-hmm. Before we end on an optimistic note, which we will, Naomi, we will end on an optimistic <laughs> note. That's how this ends. That's all, how it must, that's how we bring this to a close. Because we don't want people to feel depressed listening to us. We want them to be inspired and fight back, which they will be. They always are from you. But before I do, have you been following British politics? Um... For your own yeah. well being, I recommend not. But unless so mainly, you know, like, I mean, how massive tell you are you? Uh,
2: so far, okay, I, I've mainly followed British politics lately since the election by listening to the news quiz. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah well,
1: I, I don't listen to the news quiz, but I'm sure it's no good. None, really none of my British
2: friends do. But I'm like, it's a really good way to find out what happened in the UK last week with jokes. That I yeah, don't necessarily I mean, understand, but then I can kind of piece it together. I think British politics is, it's
1: not a funny joke. It's certainly not funny, but it, it, it could well be construed as a joke. Well, here's a, here's a hilarious joke Labour currently are opposing the Tories' plans to raise corporation tax and the Tories' proposals to have a windfall tax on companies that have profited from the pandemic. And I think this is interesting. What? Because- Mm. A lot of this has been a bit like, oh, come on, Labour, you need to oppose the Tories. You've already let them get away with one of the worst, most catastrophic bunglings of a pandemic on earth, in which mm. nearly one in every 500 Britons has died. Uh, you know, a worse death rate than America. So it's worse than Trump's handling of the pandemic. The worst death rate apart from Slovenia and Belgium. Um, maybe you can oppose the Tories. And they were like, Labour, like, we'll oppose the Tories. On oppose- the one good thing they're doing. Well, the now, opposing the Tories, raising taxes on big yeah, business, yeah. and it's it's not great. It's not ideal. Any any tips for people? We're desperate. Know me is what oh, I'm saying. Geez. What any any anything we should do? Any 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 tips? Any hope? Before we end on a, on a, on a high, what do you? Th- I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? Just listening to that. What does that make you think?
2: I mean, I feel it's a mess obviously and, and 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 we can't sugarcoat the fact that we have um you know we've suffered some major losses uh, in in north america and in um the uk um but as i said earlier you know we're failing bigger right um and maybe there's some hint in that in the, in the sense that i think that so much of the British left has been focused on um, the prime ministership right and and really kind of gain trying to get the, the 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 highest levers of power and I wonder and I mean let me tell me if I'm wrong but I wonder if maybe some more accessible levers of power at the city level for instance um, your know, labor-controlled cities haven't been used enough um, to try to be more ambitious about what could even happen in London, what could happen in Manchester, um, and and I think the the reason to do that is not like oh, I'll start small, start local, but but I'll, but to really win back some trust uh, about what progressive policies can accomplish, what left policies can accomplish in people's lives. Um, yeah, I mean th- that's where I might say we sh- we should focus energy. Does that make any sense? Does that it does, actually,
1: yeah. Yeah, that's good. That that that's some of the best advice I've heard so far. We're we're a bit lost right now, but so so any any help in solidarity is always appreciated. Finally, you let's have a my the-
2: solidarity. And I don't I mean I think it was I think it was an absolutely worthy and courageous and exciting thing to do to 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 reach for the top um in the way that the the left in the UK did. Um, mm has done. Um, well, but they'll never, forgive us.
1: they'll never forgive us for it. Um, finally, opt- optimism, and hope. I look at the, the struggle at the moment, for example, Amazon workers in mm-hmm. a right to work anti-union state in the United States, yeah. that's some hope. That's very hopeful. Absolutely. What are the things at the moment? What kind of struggles are you looking at where you mm-hmm. think these are the seeds of the future? These are the things we can build on.
2: Um, yeah, that's a great example. And I think that it, I think, organizing in the workplace, tech worker organizing. I mean, talking about pressure on big tech, it's it's pressure from users, but the, 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 the most promising pressure is the pressure that's happening inside these companies. Uh, a company like Amazon has real potential <clears throat> for solidarities, interesting solidarities within the company between uh, warehouse workers um, and uh, programmers, more white collar workers. Um, You know, and even people like us, Owen, you know, we are Amazon workers in a way. Our books are for sale on Amazon, Um, you know, cultural producers. And so these companies are so big that I think that they create really interesting opportunities for organizing almost like within them. And in a way, it kind of brings me back to the no logo days of thinking about how we, you know, use a corporation's brand against it. Um, And now we have this, these giants um, that are the, the everything store and major cultural actors, um, and tech companies and controlling the cloud and doing massive government contracts like Amazon. I don't, I think we, we we've only seen glimpses, frankly, of the organizing potential within a company like that. And if you look at this, the, 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 the organizing in New York city that led to blocking Amazon's uh, proposed headquarters there it's a glimpse of that kind of cross-movement organizing just using the amazon umbrella right I mean, they brought together migrant rights organizers who were saying you know this amazon does business with ice it puts our communities under surveillance you had people um obviously you had worker labor organizers you had anti-gentrification housing rights organizers um and it was it all came together under the kind of anti-amazon uh, uh, umbrella so I think that's really exciting there's also a really great a group of workers who call themselves amazon workers for climate justice who are looking at the carbon footprint of that company so um i you know that gives me a ton of hope indigenous led struggles against fossil fuel infrastructure we're seeing some amazing organizing against uh, a project called line three um uh which is shaping up to be the next standing rock um, and uh, you know this, the, the, and and I continue to get so much hope from from the climate justice movement, particularly the young climate justice movement. You know, just looking at the way the Fridays for Future network, right? This network that was inspired by Greta, but is much bigger than Greta. Um, you know, young people in there. In you know, some of them are are preteens, teens. Um, and they get a, they they they're in touch with each other. They call each other their sisters. When 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 Disha Ravi was arrested, this network just came together in incredible ways to uh, defend her, to call for her release, um, and they, they're extraordinary. So yeah, lots of places for hope.
1: That's a great place to end.
2: That is a very hopeful
1: note. Um no, it's been an absolute honor. It's always a pleasure. Always an honor uh your work is a i mean i always say it i don't care how much it's slightly embarrassing but when i when i was a wee boy no you're not that much older than me but when yeah. i was a teenager yeah. in the era of there is no alternative uh and there were a few voices emerging at the time who uh who were who who were dissidents in that period and and, and you were one of them so you've got you partly inspired me to be a writer so you've got that
2: to answer. Oh, oh it's, true, it's true. It's true. We, we, we tried to keep right. the door open. We tried to keep the door open a crack for all you kids to come, just bust it down when yeah. you are ready. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not and then call us sellouts. I know. What, well, indeed.
1: yeah. Well, I get that from my mom. So, um, Nomi, lots of love. That was uh, that was mom. a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thanks to everyone who listened. Bye, everyone. Thanks for
1: listening to that. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. We've got so much more to come. Do support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjoes 84 or the supporter function in the podcast description. Give us those five stars. You know you want to. And we will speak to you soon.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news.